Coming to you live from the Skylight Festival in Paris, Ontario, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And as you heard at the top, this is a live episode, so the questions are completely unscreened and the answers unrehearsed, so please be liberal and fact-check me on Google. Well, that's enough announcements. What do you say? Let's get it started. Hi, Mike. Hi. It is so fantastic to have you here in Ontario. I never it thought is, you'd come. It is so fantastic <laughs> to be here and to see you. You have a written question. I do. I, we're we're I wrote starting this off out serious. Beforehand. <laughs> so my question is about the science of meeting new people and introducing yourself to strangers. At a festival like this, it's so exciting to be around a group of like-minded people who are all interested to some degree or another in faith, art, and social justice. And part of the point of this gathering is for us to meet each other and learn from each other's experiences. But that meeting part can be hard. In some ways, it's easier for me to uh, sit here in front of literally everybody and ask a question than it is for me to introduce myself to one stranger, because there's sort of a defined script for what I'm doing right now. There's clear expectations. What's the, what's the deal with that? What's the brain science of what's going on in my head when I'm anxiously trying to convince myself to, to say hi to someone? What, what holds me back? What pushes me over the edge? Oh, man, thank you. It is not often I get a never-before question on a live science mic. First one out of the gate. So let me, let me I'll do a little sharing first. I totally understand what you're saying. Uh, my housemates from over there, as if, they're, if any of them are here, I see uh, Drew is, so they're probably like, Who's that guy on stage? That's not who we just had dinner with, who stared awkwardly into his food. Um, who is this person that's very engaged and, and exciting? That's not who we met. So I, I absolutely understand what you're talking about. Uh, there's a couple of things at play. One, if you ever heard the terms introvert and extrovert, I know groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, but then what's fascinating about the introversion-extroversion spectrum, right, you're not an introvert or an extrovert, you exist somewhere on a spectrum, is it's not just like soft psychology, nor is it woo. Uh, if you haven't heard the term woo, that's things people believe that are not scientific in nature, like literally anything Gwyneth Paltrow sells. So uh, it's called goop for a reason. Uh, anyway, so... Introversion, extroversion has to do primarily with the brain's sensitivity to stimulus. That's it. So if your brain is not very sensitive to stimulus, you're an extrovert because you literally need other people around to keep the environment dynamic enough and exciting enough for you to stay awake. What happens when really, really extroverted people are by themselves? They get bored, they fall asleep, they feel depressed. Why? Because it's like the world's not happening. Introverted people, on the other hand, their brains are super sensitive to stimuli, and that means lots of people just make their brains light up like a Christmas tree in a bad way. So if you, you can use an fMRI, which is a device that measures brains, living brains, being active by the distribution of oxygen, uh, you can tell who's an introvert and who's an extrovert with a brain scan without asking them any questions. I've been an extrovert my whole life until I fell off a motorcycle and scrambled my neurological eggs, and suddenly the world was a little harder to deal with. And for the first time, I had like real empathy for introverts as opposed to like social performative sympathy for introverts. Because <laughs> I would go to parties and I'd have like a panic attack. I'd be like, what's happening? Oh my gosh, so much. I was like, Oh, so there's that at play, where you are, introversion or extroversion. So if you're an extroversion, you've associated new people with what? An escape from an unpleasant situation. If you're an introvert, you associate new people with what? Stress and anxiety. Now, we are all, and I mean everyone here, are primates. 
100% of Homo sapiens are also primates. Sometimes people, even very progressive Christian people, get upset when you mention that humans are primates. Uh, I don't know why. I do know why. <laughs> I grew up Southern Baptist. I just don't agree with why, I guess. But we're all primates. We're not only primates, we are the most social primates that exist. Our natural group or troop size based on our brain volume is 150 individuals, which is much smaller than a city, but much larger than you would find a congregation of gorillas, for example. So we're very, very social, but we've scaled our world, believe it or not, beyond that 150. So we have this craving for social interaction, but we've built a culture and a society that throws more at our brain than we're equipped to handle. So we're balancing these two forces, our need to, to be known and to have contact with people and to not be neurologically overwhelmed. Now, there is another layer as well, and uh, that's that civilization has been pretty great in terms of helping us produce food. That's nice, I like agriculture. <laughs> Uh, it's a good, good innovation, I think. It's helped us get more consistent water supplies and those kind of things. But civilization has also brought economics and a lot of scale with that, and then incredible amounts of institutionalized oppression. And so what I have learned in more recent years that another layer of our interpersonal social dynamics are institutional forces of oppression. So at my intersection of identity and a bunch of Jordan Peterson fans just rolled their eyes, but at my intersection of identity, that was a real inside joke, I apologize for that one. Um, I am straight and I am white and I am male. And that means in most cultures, a lot of free passes. And I've even got one above that, I am a Southern American straight white male. So people are either like kind of afraid of me or pity me enough to be nicer. <laughs> so I'm either like the oppressor or like kind of the, one of the dumber oppressors that you kind of pity because I talk slower and I've got to draw, right? Uh, but what I've learned is you can be a person of color, you can be a woman, or you can be a, a more obviously disabled person than I am. And then that brings another set of risks involved into every social interaction. So like you have some point of um, disadvantage and like you have this nervousness interpersonally, but then you also have this advantage, you were just able to speak in front of a group and that's like the, the number one fear in Western society is speaking to groups. People are more afraid of speaking to groups uh, than they are of heights or sharks or like reasonable fears. <laughs> Which, don't get me wrong, I love the phobia of public speaking. It means I make a living, someone has to stand on stage. As long as everyone else is afraid of it, I don't have to be that good, of it, good at it. I just have to be willing. But you did point to something interesting. Sometimes it's easier to talk to a group of people than to one. And that's the reason for that um, is if you're not afraid of public speaking, I don't have to read a person's social cue right now, I get to average out everyone's in the room. And if you're uh, autistic, for example, that turns out to be much, much easier to figure out the approximate dynamics of a room. Like there's even, we've got kind of some cultural pockets happen. Some of you are real with me. Some of you are like, well, I mean, I guess this is better than sleeping. And um, <laughs> it's just like all in the room at the same time. But that's still easier than if it was three people and one person was just like, I'm not interested in this. That's much more like personally affronting than like, you know, who is this guy? Uh, so all those things kind of get into this big soup and, and create our interpersonal interactions. So some tips on like how if you want um, to make it easier to engage with other people socially, the best thing I have learned to, to recognize is the other person is as stressed and as anxious and as worried about being judged as I am. And flipping that script and creating some empathy often lets us skip the small talk and create a foundation for genuine human connection. Hey, Mike. So hey. glad you're here in Canada. We love you here. Come back. Thank you. I love it. Um, 
So I've been seeing a lot online recently about pigs and dogs. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else has seen this new, I don't know, trend we'll call it. Um, you know, something might say, you know, why, why do we love one and eat the other? Um, anyways, so just wanted to see your take on that. Okay, man, <laughs> this is a real creative crowd. Uh, not one, but two questions that I'm not like, haven't asked on one. I've furiously got to search the database for a record groove to drop into right now. I love pigs. I really do. Huge fan. They are sensitive. They are intelligent. They are, are caring. Uh, they're strong-willed. They're independent. And they're bacon. And just like all of those things... And I know that, like, I'm, that's not a unique quandary because when my youngest daughter, Macy, was a toddler, bacon was her favorite food, and pigs were her favorite animal. <laughs> and one day, she asked me, Dad, where do we get bacon from? Is it, like, beans? Oh, we get it from pigs. Pigs make bacon? I mean, we make bacon out of pigs and just says, so she swore off bacon immediately. I know, it's so sweet. And so weeks later, my wife was making bacon on a Saturday morning. And she, this is not the first time, but I just saw her looking at the plate and her nostrils flaring. And she picked up a piece of bacon and Tears, tears in her eyes. She said, pigs, you're my favorite animal. And you're so intelligent and sensitive, but you're delicious. <laughs> and she ate the bacon. That, my friends, is the omnivore's dilemma. Uh, the fact that we can relate to animals as fellow conscious beings and eat them. Spoiler alert. The felinids, the, the cat family of animals, they have no moral compulsion about what they do. They're not like, you know what? I hang out with gazelles all day, every day. They seem like, they seem like nice beings. You know what I mean? They don't like, I just really want to bite their necks. I don't know why. I saw a, a video clip on the internet, which is the high point of human civilization, by the way, is video clips on the internet, um, of a family of lions who chased down a baby antelope, but then didn't kill it, and like cuddled with it. And like there's a picture even of like a mother lioness like cleaning this little antelope. And it's like, are they gonna adopt it? Are they gonna let it go? Is this moment of compassion? They get hours, and then finally, they just killed it. They kept, so my point is, no, this is important. This really is like it's a joke, and it's tragic, but it is going somewhere. We are animals, and our evolutionary branch does include predators. So some of us, because we have a capacity to reason, and to have empathy, start mapping that empathy onto all sentient life and say, I'm gonna be a vegetarian or a vegan. It's the only way I can sleep at night. It's the only moral way to be. They tell all their friends about it. And that, that was a joke, I apologize. <laughs> but no, really, like there's, like there's a lot of solid moral reasoning there. Uh, the trick is we're not fundamentally a reasoning animal. That's like some recent beta software evolution installed last couple hundred thousand years, blink of an eye in the history of life. Our primary functions come from instinct and from emotions. So when people are like, I just don't, I don't, I'm in control of my feelings. Yeah, you're in control of your feelings. You've gotten confused about who's the horse and who's the buggy, right? So it's purely social reasons. We don't eat dogs in the West. Other cultures on the planet do eat dogs. We eat cows like crazy, like we're literally destroying the planet 
using cows. I'm not kidding. One day, this globe may be devoid of human civilization, and one of the primary drivers will be what? Cows. There are billions of cows on the earth today. Cows and biomass are in contention for the most biomass of any living macro animal. Cows. But you know what? In large parts of India, they don't eat cows. It completely comes down to cultural conditioning where we do and don't extend empathy. I don't know if you know this. I come from a place called the United States. <laughs> Has slightly elevated race dynamics compared to Canada. <laughs> By slightly, I mean terrifying. Yes. And worse, right? Worse the last couple of years. It's cultural reasons why we decide will extend empathy to some humans and to not others. In the United States right now, it's not only that white people only want to extend empathy to white people. White people only want to extend empathy to white people who share their political affiliation. And now we're like really dicing it up. It's like, well, I'm a, I'm a liberal. Yeah, well, I'm an anarchist socialist. We can't have coffee. Go to hell. <laughs> like we're just figuring out like less and less and less and less and less empathy. So I think the animus of the question, why do we like dogs and eat pigs, is maybe the most important question we can be asking right now, because we're asking, how do we apply empathy to other living beings? And the societal era right now is globally moving in the wrong direction. And if there's anything that fascinates me or interests me about identifying as a Christian, because let's be honest, I don't have a lot of theology. <laughs> Very limited supernatural beliefs. Like to the point, is a supernatural thing? Probably not. Uh, and yet I call myself a Christian. Why? Because it is animated by this figure whose life was devoted to the expansion of empathy towards those who generally did not receive it by the powerful. And that is a story I'm deeply interested in. So you mentioned um, your di recent diagnosis yes. um, with autism, and I um, have been following you through this, um, and I also follow you through your uh, talk around uh, being a nine on the Enneagram. And I'm wondering how, if you have noticed any additional uh, reconciliation or kind of moments of clarity in kind of who, who you are finding yourself to be through this diagnosis mm. and who you have known yourself to be through your nineness? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Super personal. Uh, not a bad thing. No, hold on. That's not a bad... I answer personal things on stage for a living. I'm uncommonly, even uncomfortably open with my innermost thoughts and experiences in front of large groups. Um, little insider information. If you haven't heard of the Enneagram, it is a system for describing personality as one of nine different types. She mentioned that I've told people I am a nine. A nine on the Enneagram is a peacemaking personality who is primarily characterized by a total aversion to conflict and to displays of anger, especially one's own displays of anger. There's a, a Twitter account that is the best way to understand the Enneagram. It's called Ennea Dogs, where they describe the Enneagram using only gifts of dogs. <laughs> And the, the caption was, when you are a nine who is not mad, capital not, capital mad, at someone and they ask you to do something, and it showed a bulldog just lying prostrate on the ground and a woman trying to pull it with the leash, and it was just like... <laughs> like passive stubborn aggression, stubborn passive aggression is like the nine characteristic. So... Uh, I never liked the Enneagram because I would take the test and it would say I was all of them but the eight. Um, <laughs> but maybe like most prominently the two and the nine and then an Enneagram specialist told me, well, that's how nine score. They score as everything. I'm like, well, isn't that convenient? Is that documented in a peer-reviewed study or is it just woo? And um, <laughs> then I read more about the nine and I was like, no, nah, this is kind of reading my mail. It's kind of freaky. But you know what? So do horoscopes sometimes. <laughs> if you use a certain combination of like vague and prosaic, <laughs> you can really like let the narrative nature of human consciousness 
fill in the blanks in a way the author did not necessarily intend. So anyway, I just kind of made peace with the fact I'm a nine, mainly on the fact that like, if anyone gets angry, I'm like, this is bad. And if I get angry, the self-loathing, just the instant like, this is not okay. So my nineness comes down primarily to being like a nerdy Southern male, just a real contradiction, like a Southerner who never liked football. So I became very uncomfortable with displays of like overt emotion and feeling. I never really knew why until I figured out, oh, I'm autistic. I don't understand feelings. Doesn't mean I don't have feelings. I actually have very powerful feelings. But uh, like this happened the other day. I'm about to vomit. I'm hungry. I'm going to faint. And I'm nervous are all the same physical sensation to me. I don't know which one of the four it is. Or maybe if my therapist will explain to me, no, that's actually a fifth thing you didn't know about. My feelings are these mysterious movements in my bodies that I have to learn to identify. And when other people, especially non-autistic people, express emotions, uh, unless I've taken the time ahead of time to read a book about that feeling and the corresponding physiological signs, that doesn't mean anything to me. So when I was a very small child, people's feelings just confused me. So I responded by what? Having fits, which is super appropriate in the South with Baptist parents. So that usually meant a whipping and crying, just I would cry. Uh, Because crying, I learned very quickly, has a different response than screaming and striking yourself. So the the weird thing is like the nine was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. When someone mentioned that they thought I might, it was Hillary McBride, by the way, from the Literacy Podcast, was like, Mike, I don't know how to to say this. They were doing a a body movement thing at dinner. There was some tequila involved. And... uh, (laughs) They all looked at me to do the body movement thing. And I, I don't really have any control over from here to here, except it's like one giant muscle group slash lever. So if you're like, hey, shake your hips, I do this. <laughs> right? So they were doing the chest shimmy thing that like dancing girls do. I don't know what they even call it. So I'm sorry, this is terrible radio internet, but this is for the people here. I'm gonna, this is what I did at dinner, because they all did the thing. You know what the thing is. This is my honest attempt. That's real. That's it. Right? Because I don't, so Hillary was like, hey, can you roll your shoulders? I was like, yeah. She's like, no, like this. You know how to roll your shoulders. I was like, yeah, just like, just like this. So it took like 25 minutes of Hillary putting her hand on my shoulder to get me to, and I've been practicing since. Right? So here's the deal. Finding out I was on the autism spectrum, not only just on the autism spectrum, but like, no, you're like autistic and the scores aren't ambiguous. It was life-changing. I kn- my wife has said I was on the spectrum for like 10 years. I'd be like, hey, I love you so much you're not a clinical psychologist or a neuroscientist and you're not qualified to make that diagnosis and you're minimizing the experience of autistic people. And then, more recently, people at events like these would stand up and they'd say, Science Mike, like you, I'm autistic and the way that you deal with your autism is very inspiring. Could you tell me how you deal with blank and being autistic? And I'd be like, that was so beautiful and so vulnerable and thank you for sharing, but I am not autistic. Right? So, <laughs> because why? No, hold on. Like, there's some key things here. One of the, the main things for diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder is what? Difficulty with socialization. I'm really pretty good at socialization if I'm on. And so, so when I went in to get tested for autism... No, th- no, this wasn't even that. This was when I was talking to Hillary. She said, okay, so how do you socialize with people? I said, well, it was really hard for me when I was young, but I realized that humor was an opener. So I recorded every stand-up comedy special I could on the VCR, and I played them back with a stopwatch and graph paper, and I timed, <laughs> this is true, I timed the amount of time between a setup and a punchline figured out the mean and the average and some other things. And when I built a graph, 
pre-computer. This was all by hand, like a boss. And I programmed my brain to be funny by rehearsing in my room alone, set up, beat, beat, unexpected answer. And so I can walk into a room now and people are like, is he a stand-up comedian? I'm not that funny, it's just math. <laughs> By the way, I just did it and it worked again. So it's like, it's so ever. So she's like, okay. And I was like, yeah. And then I learned that people, their feelings matter to them. So we didn't have the internet back then. So I went to the encyclopedia set and I looked up all of people's feelings and body language in the encyclopedia and memorize physiological characteristics in body tone, body expression, facial expression, and vocal tone that indicated different feelings and memorized a database of feelings so I could express empathy at appropriate moments. <laughs> and she goes, Mike, you're not unconvincing me. She said, but you make eye contact. Is that comfortable for you? And I said, well, I got a real simple thing for eye contact. I look someone in the eyes, sorry, you ask the questions, you get big. And I just say this in my head, looked them in the eyes, looked them in the eyes, looked them in the eyes, because it makes people think you care and you're listening, and I am. But it is way easier for me to listen to you like this, or like this, like, you're, like somebody's jewelry, that's a real natural resting place for me. But guess what, if I rest my eyes on a woman's jewelry, that can be super misinterpreted. Look them in the eyes while dying a little inside every second. So it's tough, but like in a kind of a wonderful way, growing up in the South in a culture that in no way would tolerate variance from social norms means that the completely artificial persona I put on to make people feel loved, because I do care that you feel loved. I don't, I don't create a personality, a persona, in order to make myself look good, I don't give two shits how I look to people. But I really care that you, and I mean you and you and every person here, feel loved and feel known and feel accepted because I didn't know what that was like till I was in my teens. It was so weird to have a disorder become the most liberating piece of information I'd ever received. It, by the way, it wasn't only liberating for me. My wife was like elated. <laughs> Jenny was like, oh my, oh God, yes, he's, he's autistic. Because she had learned, if you ask me a question while I'm brushing my teeth, there's a 100% chance I will lock my keys in my car later. You broke my routine. My entire life is loops and routines and loops and routines. She needed to know that if she came into the office and asked me a question while I was researching, my, my jaw would snap. I didn't know I was doing it or I would hit my face. No one, the guard never came down enough for anyone who didn't live in the same house with me for 20 years to see that. But it was so comforting for her. So I really wrestled with like, do I tell the public that I'm autistic? Because I don't want to feed the mythos of autism as the lone male genius. Um, so in a lot of ways, like I'm like stereotypically autistic in a way that erases the real experiences of people whose autism manifests itself in a different area of focus. The clinical psychologist I talked to said that you can imagine if human consciousness existed on a large sheet of paper, like normal neurotypical human consciousness, an autistic person's consciousness happened on a much smaller sheet of paper that was three-dimensional. And so for every autistic person, the aperture is a different size. Mine's relatively broad and also quite deep. Um, but it happens in different places. So another autistic person might not be able to speak or have social contact, but might have some kind of particular giftedness or not. Their consciousness may manifest itself in such a way that no person, even other autistic people, can't really understand and relate to their interior landscape. But what ultimately decided me, decided to have me be open and honest about the fact that I had received an autism diagnosis was the degree to which people have, myself included, bad preconceptions about autism. Because how many times I said, no, you don't understand, I can't be autistic. 
And in doing so, what was I doing? I was minimizing who autistic people could be. I am very lucky in my life to be a, a weird, nerdy guy, <laughs> truly, deeply weird. My friends would testify to that. <laughs> Who had to get a, a mailbox for all the cards and, and letters that I receive. People are like, how do you deal with the hate mail? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't get hate mail. I get the hate tweets, but let's be honest, <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> but what I get is cards and letters from people thanking me for being honest on stage and on a podcast. And the other thing I do is I cry on stage for a living. Uh, isn't that just like the, like the, the whitest patriarchy, masculinity thing, by the way, to apologize for crying? There's nothing wrong with crying. I got to quit doing it. So um, the amount of cards and letters I've gotten from people on the spectrum since I said it on the podcast, handwritten, handmade cards and letters with tips. <laughs> like, welcome, here's your welcome packet. <laughs> here's how to do life. And guess what? They are right. Like the people who are diagnosed as children and have gone through a lot more than I have, like they have all these wonderful tips. Someone said like, hey, I noticed you don't stim a lot. Stimming is a self-soothing behavior. Like, and he said, I'm imagining you've gone through great effort to not wave your hands around. It's true, I have to buy socks all the time because I constantly curl my toes to the point that I put holes in the tops and bottles of my shoe boxes and tear my socks apart. He said, when you're feeling tired, and like you can't go anymore, just let your right hand move however it wants to. And I was sitting in my office one day and I was tired and I had more work to do I just, I was like, what am I going to do? There's the thing I've always done. I spin in my office chair when no one's looking. I didn't know that was a thing. That's a thing. And spinning didn't help. So I just let my hand start to go. And what do you know? After about like a minute and a half, I had a new lease on life. Something beautiful happens when we don't let culture make us ashamed of our intersections of identity. Something beautiful happens when we're honest about who we are, because not only can others see us and know us better and us them in return, not only can we understand that we all have unique struggles and challenges in life, but people who have walked the road that you're just starting can help you understand the territory ahead. All right. Um, my question has to do with bullying. Oh, oh, specifically okay. children and bullying. Um, I know that uh, I know that you have some experience with this. Um, I, I grew up with some experience, and now I'm now I have a son who's dealing with who's dealing with trauma from his bullying and growing up. I'm just wondering, like nature versus nurture, where, where does that come from? This sense of bullying the the weak person, bullying the person who's different. You know, is it? Something they're learning from, from culture, from their parents? Is it something we're ingrained with? Um, and I know we grow up to be bullies as well, but it, like, it just, it's just weird to me that, because I, I, I mean, I believe in that all children are born wonderfully innocent and good. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, I, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. First of all, I'm sorry. I wish my mom was here, because I feel like my mom would have way better answers to this question than I do because she walked like your road, maybe that would be worse. When you're a bullied kid, like it's really all you know. I never had friends until the fat melted and I became a teenager, I learned to play the guitar, engineer a new persona, memorize comedy, show up in high school making jokes, be like, oh, he's cool. But I mean, elementary school was hell. And um, it was a tough road. Once I started having friends, I didn't believe they actually liked me. I thought they were setting me up for a big prank. Uh, I finally got over that feeling in my mid-30s. I attempted suicide eight or 10 times in my teenage years and college age years. Um, all try and it all, it all, it all came from that bullying. It's tough. It is really, really, anyone who's like, oh, kids are gonna be kids, shut up. Unless someone has fed you 
dog shit out of a plastic bag behind a tree on the playground? Shut up with kids are going to be kids. This is this killing people. What, what, what do you think's happening to gay teenagers? Bullying is what's happening to gay teenagers. That's why their suicide, right, suicide rates are so elevated. This stuff is life and death. It is not trivial. It is not kid stuff. Air quotes, internet. You didn't see it. Um, where does it come from? I don't think in the sciences today we can ever definitively answer nature, nurture, especially because I've been thinking a lot lately and reading a lot lately. There's no difference. Stick with me. <laughs> Where's all the nurturing coming from? Nature. It's kind of an artificial dividing line. What we're asking with that question is like, what's the most effective way to change something, I think? Like, is, is this lung cancer... Is it smoking? Is it, is it genes we're born with? And it turns out the answer in lung cancer is both. The, there's a genetic fact that increases propensity for risk of lung cancer, and then smoking is a contributing factor and a very significant one. But if someone has a high genetic resistance to lung cancer, they might smoke cigarettes their whole lives and never get lung cancer, where someone who has like three genes already flipped out of the total six for particular types of lung cancer, they may never smoke a single cigarette and get lung cancer in their 40s and die, right? So I think like our behavior exists in the same kind of intersection of those factors. So I don't, I don't know like nature versus nurture. What I do know is that if smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer, then culture is a risk factor for behaviors like bullying, right? So some people maybe, like I was asking a friend of mine, oh, once again, Hillary McBride, I should really just start saying in this show brought to you by a conversation with Hillary McBride. <laughs> we were talking about uh, sexual assault and patriarchy. And I was mentioning to her, like, I've never understood that. Like, if I've assumed a partner was any, anything less than extremely enthusiastic and consent, I don't know that I would physically be able to continue any encounter. Like, like, desire is the entire aphrodisiac. What the heck? And she said, well, your mom probably hugged you a lot. I was like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> oh, I don't need to express my power and intimacy. I was nurtured as a child, Right? Uh, I discovered years later that the bully who made me most miserable of anyone, just the cruelest, he was the most popular kid in school, uh, his father beat him. He's terrified. He's six years old, he didn't know how to cope. So he sees my like chubby, undiagnosed autistic self and I'm the same kind of weak target to him that he was to his father, a way to express this rage. And in this cycle, like, and then something in me, my response to being bullied is I can't tolerate it. Where's my justice, like, thirst come from? I'm not a good person. To me, racism is just a fancy form of systemic bullying, and that shit doesn't fly to a kid who was force-fed out of a bag, right? It's not going to work. So, bullying is totally a natural primate behavior. Watch chimps, watch gorillas. The bigger ones pick on the smaller ones. It's in the DNA. You know what else is a natural primate behavior? Rape. You know what else is a natural primate behavior? Assault. All the worst stuff that we hate. War. War is a primate behavior. Other than human beings who are the masters at war, You'll hear more about that in my talk tomorrow morning. Chimpanzees are the second most warring species alive on the planet. They're also our nearest relatives. Just because something's natural has nothing to do with whether it's okay or not. Like, I'm so over the, like, is it a choice? Who gives a shit if it's a choice? What's the impact on others? So I think the contributing cultural factors that lead to bullying are primarily patriarchy. That we elevate power is important and that hierarchy is important. Patriarchy 
warps male behavior. It makes intimacy a sign of weakness, which means the most powerful humans in human history, American white men, also have some of the highest suicide rates. They don't know how to have friendships. They can't appear weak. They got to be at the top of the hierarchy. They figure out it's lonely up there. But patriarchy also warps the behavioral patterns of women in society because it means they have to compete with each other to be a prize for the most powerful male. It creates bullying in men and women and just erasure and violence for anyone who dares be non-binary because you don't fit in either competitive set. You've got to be eliminated. You could mess up the whole game. Now, how much comfort is that to a bullied kid? Hey, it's okay. It's just the patriarchy. <laughs> Don't worry. Give us 20 minutes, we'll tear the whole thing down, right? <laughs> it's only been around since the dawn of agriculture. It means I don't think there's a simple solution to bullying other than a complete renegotiation of the social fabric, which actually, quite delightfully, I think we're in the middle of. Yes. I don't know that the light is winning necessarily, <laughs> but at least we're having the conversation right now. Um, and in your life, you are the light for your son. The reason I am alive and not death, because at least mom loved me. And that's a heavy, heavy burden, but your acceptance and validation and even anger is a lifeline in a very dark place for a bullied child. I think the difference between me and the kids who did Columbine is my mom, I knew my mom loved me. It was not an ounce of question because, like, I get it. Every time a school shooting happens, when I was in high school, I constantly fantasized about taking guns on campus, not to turn them on other people, but to turn them on myself in front of the kids who made my life hell. Like an ultimate, like, this is what this does to people. And it's not okay. But having had a brief conversation with you, <laughs> I think your son's going to be okay. And then there's this other thing that happens at Ask Science Mike Live. It gets real. And then suddenly that sound effect I made earlier seems blasphemous and profane. <laughs> so in those situations, I have a different ritual and loop wherein I announce the awkwardness of making the sound effect to create a transition wherein I can go, do, 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 do. <laughs> I never realized this entire podcast is an experiment in autistic relationship dynamics. <laughs> Who's next? Hi, Mike. I'm Sarah. Hey, Sarah. Um, I, my question, you've alluded today about how your, you, for your, your career, you get really vulnerable. You get really personal on stage. And I'm wondering, I've heard different opinions um, from people, experts who speak and who write about the process between the diagnosis or the crisis or the really difficult thing, the divorce or whatever, and then processing that with time or sometimes without time before they exude it to the public. And I'm just curious about what your process has been. It seems that, for example, with your recent diagnosis, it was pretty pretty quick it seems but but maybe not or maybe quicker than I wanted it to be but yeah 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 just curious about other things or other suggestions is it different for different people is there better is there not as good yes that is a great question I would say one I didn't come up with this phrase and I'm paraphrasing this phrase but speak from scars and not open wounds because you speak from open wounds you share your trauma, it is powerful and triggering and re-traumatizing for other people. So what I try to get to the point in my experience is where my sharing will provide a movement towards healing or closure or progress in someone's life and not just throw them into the dark. Don't always get it right. I have a weird thing with my audience 
there's a there's a liturgist audience and there's a segment of it that's the science mic audience. The science mic audience is mainly evangelicals, former evangelicals, and atheists. It's a strange assortment of people. Uh, many of whom are, uh, many of the people are out of evangelicalism or out of evangelicalism because they are women who've experienced extreme discrimination. They're LGBTQ folks. They're in some way, they didn't make the evangelical check mark you're okay list. So they become former evangelicals. And there's people who are just like, hey, religion is ridiculous, but you mainly talk about it in terms of neuroscience, and I'm okay with that. But it means that when I say things, uh, I can't just do enough processing where I'm okay with it. I have to do enough processing where I imagine how it will be interpreted by the intersecting spectrums of people that listen to the work. When you throw in the entire liturgist audience, that gets crazy because non-affirming Christians and LGBTQ people are almost equal percentages of our total audience. So what do I have to tell LGBTQ people about their experiences? Nothing other than I love you, I accept you, I affirm you. That's all I have to say. But what do I have to say to people who are not affirming? So much. Why? Because I used to be them. Um, but sometimes, in order to have a conversation that is statistically productive with non-affirming people, meaning I have a reasonable chance at actually changing some minds, I go to territory that is like take your breath away painful for people who are actually LGBTQIA in some way. So for example, we did a podcast uh, called The Ethics of F star 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 ING about sexual ethics. And we invited a guy named Christopher West on. And we invited him on because he's a Catholic theologian who we really disagree with. But if we don't include for that crowd one of their people and give them a fair shake, they shut off and stop listening. And my, I'm, I'm a former marketer. I'm an incredibly manipulative person towards strategic goals. So if I'm gonna talk about this on our podcast. I'm talking about it for two reasons. One, solidarity with the marginalized. But two, actually, if there's a way I can help things get better, I wanna do that. And I think for people, for straight people, having the awkward conversation when people don't get it, that's like a good role for us. Not to say we're experts, we're not, but to answer the million questions that are invasive and intrusive and traumatizing for people who actually are a lesbian. You know what I mean? Like that's a different thing to question the validity ethically and spiritually of your existence than it is to be like, hey, I used to think like you and here's why I changed my mind. But when we had Christopher West on the show, he made this incredibly insensitive, well, he made a bunch of insensitive remarks, <laughs> but he made an especially insensitive remark about uh, intersex people. And I'm an autistic Enneagram 9, so when he said that, I was so stunned, I just like withdrew and was silent, and then later recorded like, because I just couldn't say anything. So like, we recorded a follow-up to the conversation. I was like, I couldn't even talk. And then I released this episode, and we released the episode, and like, I can't name the city because I can't blow their cover, but five nuns came up to me out of it, like Catholic nuns, not nuns like no religious affiliation. <laughs> That's, believe, believe it or not, that, that like accidental pun is a problem in my work all the time. Uh, Five nuns came up to me and they said, you know, we heard your Christopher West interview on Letters Podcast. We're so glad you included him because I'd never realized how toxic our beliefs are until that. Catholic nuns, check. Strategic goal accomplished. Also, emails from intersex people listening to the podcast said, I couldn't go to work that day because that broke me. This stuff is hard. Um, so here's what I say. Process as much as you possibly can. It helps if you're autistic, you process quickly. But like, I didn't want to talk about autism so quick. We were going to plan a special liturgist podcast episode. We we're going to have disability advocate experts. We have all these people on. 
but don't you know it? I, I have made some commitments. I'll answer any question on Ask Science Mike I get asked. And I don't pick the questions on the show. The people, the patrons who like send me a, a dollar or five dollars a month, they pick the questions. And that week, they picked a question about autism spectrum disorder and what happens in the brain. And I could not, I felt like I would be lying to the audience if I didn't say, oh, by the way, I just found out I'm autistic. So I ended up doing that like more raw than I wanted to. But my point is we have to do the work we can do to make sure we are trying to help provide healing and closure to people when we speak and not simply re-traumatize them. You do need to share your painful story in order to heal. You need to share it with a therapist or a trusted, cherished friend. You don't necessarily need to just dump trauma on a room. But then also you have to know, even doing your best, you're still going to hurt people. The thing I hate the most about my life right now is too many people listen to me. This was so much easier when it was a half million downloads on the Liturgist podcast. Once we got to four million a month, I did the math. Hundreds of thousands of people hear me the first time every time we put on an episode. They have no context about who I am. They have no ongoing relationship with me. They don't know the arc of my work. I'm just somebody sent them something via email at work. It was like, you gotta hear this. The amount of genuine hurt my work creates in the world breaks my heart to the point that I often want to quit. Except, what about all the bullied kids who like wrote me and said, I was going to kill myself and I didn't because I heard your podcast. So that means if we're going to speak, it means we know our words have the potential to not only remedy harm, but to inflict it, to paraphrase the, the great Albus Dumbledore. <laughs> By the way, I noticed it was getting heavy in the room, so I threw a joke to lighten you up. Doesn't it feel good? But it also means we have to be responsive to people's pain. So the least healthy thing I could do is go like, you know what? Your pain's not real because that wasn't my intent. So that means I just go to talk to therapists a lot and cry because I feel so bad so that I have the emotional fortitude to respond to the tweets and the emails, and the cards, and the letters, and the angry people in the line after events, and be able to say, in all honesty, I am sorry that I hurt you, and I own it. I don't distance it. I don't deflect it, because their pain is real. And I think part of where we are as a society is a failure to acknowledge that people's pain and fear is real, so do your best processing and do your best, most sincere apologizing. Hi, love you, love your work. This is a hot mic. Um, <laughs> Some of us speak in an octave in which microphones enjoy. <laughs> um, my daughter and I this morning were talking, my eight-year-old daughter and I were talking this morning about whether inspiration or intuition. We were talking about coming to this festival, mm -hmm. and I was saying, well, people are going to try to figure out what God might be saying to them and how God wants us to live our lives. And she said, well, how do you know it's God and not just something you're making up and then calling that? Which I was like, that was a great question. So we talked about it for a while, and she thinks that it's just, it's intuition or something like that, that then we call something else. And she's especially uh, suspicious of it when it's somebody standing on a stage saying, God says, do this, which I think mm. is great. Mm -hmm. I was, it made me wonder, I go, okay, by what process in my brain do I think as a believer that this intuition carries X amount of weight, but this other kind of intuition, I believe, carries a divine weight? Yes. Is there a difference in that from a functional MRI standpoint, from the way the brain lights up? Uh, or is it impossible to judge from the outside the same way that we can't judge whether or not somebody is in love with somebody else from the outside, but you know it on the inside. You know it when it happens. Yes, great question that I wish I didn't have as good an answer as I do for. Because on those <laughs> questions, I love to appeal to mystery. Unfortunately, the brain scans did find something. You have neurological hardware that has a job. And that neurological hardware, this network's job, is to say... Is blank really happening? Why, why would you need that? Because your consciousness uh, is a story your brain is telling, where you're the protagonist, 
people that oppose you are the villains. And so when you're daydreaming or you're dreaming, your brain needs to know this is not happening out there, it's happening in here. Because if you're dreaming that you're running from a tiger and you start flailing your legs, you could injure yourself severely. So your brain needs to have some capacity to say, there's this stuff out here, there's stuff in here. I need to be able to model things with very high fidelity in here. That's what makes humans humans. The ability to imagine situations and rehearse them in our minds and have the corresponding parts of our brain light up as it was really happening. That's what makes us us. We're the daydreaming animal. So the theory is that religious people are trained through different rituals, worship experience, prayer routines, discernment, to start identifying part of their cognitive process as coming from the exterior world. And the hypothesis has been tested as shown in Tanya Lerman's book, When God Talks Back, Understanding Evangelical America's Relationship with God or with the Divine. Basically, something happening in your mind gets evaluated by the brain as happening in reality. Now, depending on your epistemological assumptions, that's either fascinating or wrecking. <laughs> it's like, what way you're saying God's just like a part of my brain? No, I'm saying God's a network of things in your brain, but um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The joke softens it up. That's all that was for. Just a little softening. There's young people here. I don't know. Maybe somebody just gave their life to Jesus. Now there's like, mommy, what's he saying? He's a heretic. Don't worry. Um, I'm just, just kidding. It's UCC. There's no heretics here. But uh, super inside jokes. Sorry. I was proud of that one, though. Um, what I would say is if you're a person for whom the supernatural is an important part of your faith experience, you might want to consider that a necessary reconfiguration of an antenna to receive a divine signal, right? So what's fascinating about when neuroscientists study God, they never study God. Neuroscientists make no attempt to answer objectively, does God exist? They understand because they're neuroscientists, that's kind of a ridiculous question because no two people mean the same thing when they say God anyway. What they're looking for is what do beliefs and experiences with God do to the human brain? And that's what I just explained to you. So if you're an atheist, congratulations. We just disproved religious experiences. And if you're a Christian, congratulations. You understand a little bit more about how God works now. That's how I keep both groups <laughs> buying tickets. <laughs> Hi, um, I know you like data. I ran into some recent Pew Research data that says 27% of nuns mm -hmm. pray regularly. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Why, what's the science behind that? Yeah, great. That's a fantastic question. That's what we call a slow pitch right across the plate. When he said 20% of, of nuns, that was the N-O-N-E-S <laughs> nuns, not 20% of... Catholic nuns, I assume, higher than 27% of them pray regularly. Uh, really interesting things in the data. Um, religious affiliation is falling fastest in North America. Uh, and it is, boy, it's, it's plummeting. That is not a growth market, folks, organized religion in North America right now. Um, among white people. Important caveat. Because this it, is an unconscious thing we do, because there's so many white people, we make a statement about white people and then just apply it to all people, and often that's factually incorrect. There's not actually a religious affiliation crisis among people of color in North America, even among millennials. So then why are, uh, why are numbers so bad when you include all millennials? Because numbers are so bad among white millennials. So North America, let's be precise, America and Canada, not Mexico. North America, it's top two countries. I mean, geographically. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I actually do care about speaking with precision because I don't like to erase human beings. Um, religious identity, uh, crash. Unlike Europe... 
Canada and the United States are not actually secularizing. People who identify as atheists is not skyrocketing. People who identify as agnostic is growing somewhat. America is de, and Canada are de-religiousing, but they're not de-spiritualing, right? So people, they have less specific notions about God, but they're not that likely to say they don't believe in God at all, although that has declined as well. But because people believe in some kind of spirituality, often ambiguous, they still care about praying and ritual. And what we're finding, by the way, is there's a tremendous, everybody left church, (laughs) all the white people left church, (laughs) and then they got super lonely and isolated. And really sad. Um, Which means like, I accidentally started a podcast at exactly the right time. Uh, (laughs) Because like, we sell tickets and, and people come like, it's at a church. I can't go to a church, but it's the liturgist. I trust them. And then like, as soon as we get in the room, we make sure to F-bomb from stage. Just, and people, I know it's a joke about progressive Christians <laughs> saying curse words, but it's just like, we got to do something blasphemous <laughs> so everyone stays in the room. <laughs> and so we figured like an F-bomb is like better than like defiling religious images or something. So... <laughs> I wish that wasn't an honest to God calculated decision. So, uh, so people's longing for a connection with the divine hasn't declined. What has declined is their tolerance for institutionalized religious white supremacy, patriarchy, heterosexism. That's the thing. That's the, I can't do this. I can't do, by the way, a bunch of, baby boomers lecturing me about morality, about the sanctity of marriage and their fourth marriage. I can't handle them saying like sexual purity is important when they have so many sexual partners. Like an odd thing about like, um, well, even we have the data on this. LGBTQ millennials have fewer sexual partners than evangelical boomers. Hmm. Fascinating. Then they call me, pastors call me, Science Mike, why are the young people leaving the church? Because they're puking in their mouths at your hypocrisy. Clean the stuff out of your closet, man, and they might come back. You can't preach about the gospel and then ignore the stuff about caring for the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. Because now you're just a hypocrite. That's why the millennials are gone. It's not because they're angry with God. They still pray more often than you do. But millennials as a generation have decided, I'm just gonna be honest about who I am and what I'm doing. So I'm not, I cannot go to a nice, cushy country club on Sunday mornings and talk about the importance of a first century Palestinian and ignore the plight and the blight in my community the rest of the week. So the science there is simple. Spirituality is not in decline in Canada or the United States at all. Like God says, the lukewarm, being neither hot nor cold, will be spit out of God's mouth. And so perhaps by rejecting hypocritical organized religious institutions, millennials are the most godlike generation that we've seen in a very, very long time. (laughs) Little preachy there at the end, little preachy. Thing is, I actually actually believe that. I thought I was done, I'm not. (laughs) I stopped calling myself a Christian for years. Even after, like I was an atheist, then Long story, I wrote a book about it, met God on the beach, like personally, me here, God here, then God here, very cool. Still couldn't call myself a Christian because of Western civilization and all. Uh, I just, as quick as summary I know. But then I, I noticed that um, my friends who are descendants of people who were kidnapped in Africa, and put on ships and brought here, 
for whom Christianity was literally a colonization and exploitation of their culture, redeemed Christianity, and they call themselves Christian because they care about the story of liberation. And the same was true for my Hispanic and Latino friends. And then I noticed that people who were way more rejected by evangelicalism than I've been, LGBTQ people, so many of them identified as Christians. This faith is only powerful when it is a faith of the marginalized. And that's why I love millennials. That's why as a Gen Xer, my work is with millennials and post-millennials is because I care that they collectively seem to have decided, hey, like, there seems to be some wisdom coming from the people who don't have the keys to all the doors. Maybe we should listen to them and maybe we should start handing out all these keys. And um, so I get it. I get the like, I can't call myself a Christian. I was there, but now I do. But the reason I do, (laughs) I call myself a Christian in solidarity and support with people who do, which by the way, like all, and I mean all the theologians I read are people of color or queer. Like either we got plenty of Dutch German stuff that I got enough of that for my whole life. <laughs> so I'm listening to people who've experienced lives a lot more like Jesus than I ever have. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> You did it. You survived a live episode of Ask Science. Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for wonderful questions. I'd like to thank Andrew Galecki for his work in pre-production on Ask Science Mike, Greg Nordine for producing Ask Science Mike, and as always, my lovely patrons who make sure I can pay my rent. If you'd like to join them, I just need like a buck a month. Go to AskScienceMike.com, click the Patreon button. Uh, that would be super helpful. Uh, oh, and as always, thanks Jeb Botterford for the wonderful theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you next week.